We are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 34 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Switzerland has news for ICO fans, Telegram has a lot of ICO money from its fans, and Vitalik Buterin has words of warning for cryptocurrency fans. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, we're back, and Colin G. Platt is back. Colin G. Platt, where in the world are you? I am I am back in France, however, not next to a field. Actually, I never really left France, so I'm still in France. You were, where were you? You were on an Alp or something, being weird with animals? Uh, I was actually on, on plural Alps. I was uh, I was in eastern France in, in Savoie, near Switzerland, uh, skiing. Oh, well, that sounds far too much fun. So tell me what's outside your window right now. Uh, well, there's a rhododendron in my garden. Uh, it's not a field, but there's a little bit of grass, so it's quite nice. So it's your mini field? Could we call it that? A mini field? I, I guess you could call like a small patch of grass a mini field if you'd like. <laughs> it's now your mini field. Also, you've grown a small patch of grass on your face. Like, what's this beard thing about? Well, are, are you going to reach out and talk to me about having a beard, Simon? Come on. <laughs> I, I've always had the beard, but that grew on you pretty quickly. Like, are you going part Yeti on me? What's going on? I, you know, it was probably part of being in the Alps. It was cold up there, and, you know, you got to stay warm. You got to stay warm. All right. Before we get started with the podcast, we wanted to let you know that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary or a Colin. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. It's ready to build on today, even if you have a rhododendron, um, and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Uh, You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions. Go to Corda.net to learn more. And don't forget, CordaCon is happening in Tokyo on March the 7th. Uh, Don't miss out. You can email events at r3.com for more information and to register. Colin, it's time to get on with the news. Are you ready for some news? Oh, I am ready for some news. I missed it last week. You did, but um, shout out to Sarah, who did a fantastic job and who will definitely be back on the show. She did an excellent job. I was really impressed listening back to the show. Can't wait to have Sarah back. Uh, All right, so first story, one from CNBC. The US government is nowhere close to regulating bitcoin uh white house cyber security coordinator says so what's going on colin this one i have to do say it was one of my 2018 predictions that we came out with in in december that the white house would say something rob joyce here is a special advisor to the president works with the, the u.s treasury secretary steve mnuchin I don't know if I say that right. Nobody says that right, I guess. Um, anywho, he came out and said, look, it's something we're watching uh, while he was at a Munich security conference, um, uh, but they're not really ready to make any moves on it, uh, which is probably a-, a good thing because for once in a while, uh, the US administration needs to agree with what the people in other parts of the government, like the CFTC and the SEC have been saying. So it's good that they're looking at it. It's good that they're kind of taking a step back. They're not moving forward on anything, but they are aware of it, which again, it's good that they're aware of what's going on around them because that may or may not always be the case. Um, I, I, I suspect that uh, if things do start moving around more, uh, you may see swifter action. But uh, let's hope that uh, the government's all moving together in the same direction, at least in the US. 
Yeah, there's an interesting quote here, which is, uh, I think, from Rob Joyce, where he says, I think we're still absolutely studying and understanding what the good ideas and bad ideas in this space are um, about the potential. So I don't think it's close. So they're still trying to get their head around it and understand it. And um, there's the quote we keep hearing from the CFTC commissioner, Christian Carlo, who says we must first do no harm. I think the US has um, kind of learned a lot from how little they regulated the internet and then the explosion of activity they had uh, after the uh, Commerce Bill of 96 and uh, kind of looking for that lack of regulation to kind of bring in innovation. But when you're dealing with people's money and people who may lose out, you've also got to be careful in, in terms of how you do that. So thoughtful comments here uh, from that. And, and of course, we've seen this in the price recently, haven't we? That uh, the steady recovery in Bitcoin and a lot of the crypto in the, in the past week or two. Yeah, I, I think um, cryptocurrency traders were very happy with the comments that came out of the, the US. Senate committee um, with Christian Giancarlo coming in and saying exactly as you said, let's first do no harm. Let's see where the innovation can come from. Um, I, I was surprised at how positively the markets reacted, I guess. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about the price of it, but uh, what is really interesting in that is that people really expected the worst. Um, and then when they came out and said what their prepared speeches said, which had been echoing what they'd been saying for the last ooh, about a year, um, people were very happy that they they maintain a consistent line. Um, I, I guess, as with all these things, one good tweet could ruin them. Um, so we'll, we'll see if the, the tweeter in chief decides to break with what's been said. But uh, this is a promising sign that at least they want to understand what's going on. Tweeter in chief. I like that one. All right. Um, so speaking of uh, people with large Twitter followings and or followings generally, a story from Coindesk where Ellen DeGeneres um, said Bitcoin's either worth $20,000 or worth nothing. Um, I don't think she was making a price prediction here, but good old Coindesk managed to turn it and make it sound like that. Um, sort of really nice little uh, statement here that comes from this one where she says, think of Bitcoin as a bit like a picture of a goat on the internet. It may be cute, but it's only there on the screen. You can't reach in and pet it. You can hold it in your phone or on an app or a little plastic wallet or USB stick. But if your USB stick goes in the washing machine, then you are out of luck. I think that might be one of the best descriptions of Bitcoin for like the non-technical audiences I've heard. I know it's super, super, super high level, but like it kind of explains it, right? Yeah, it does. But I mean, how how is that really any different from money in your bank account? Like, yes, you can go get a piece of cash, but like, what does that really represent a piece of cash um, or, or a coin or anything like that? I mean, how is this really different from a US dollar or, you know, if you put money through the washing machine and it gets shredded up, you lost that money, you're out of luck. Um, I, I think that there's slightly more to it um, that we talk a lot about on this show, the fact that it's not backed by a central bank that does make it quite different. The fact that it is um, based on its own security, uh, it makes it quite different. The fact that it is this this notion of having um, a provable digital scarcity is, is quite different. So I think what's really interesting about this story is how it really showcases this theme that you and I have been hitting on, which is Bitcoin becoming mainstream. Um, I mean, the idea that even a year ago, somebody like Ellen DeGeneres would be talking to her followers who tend to be, um, for those uh, the listeners that aren't familiar with the show, um, which I think would be surprisingly few, it's generally talking to people who are not uh, techies, let's put it there, um, not necessarily people that we would equate with being into something like Bitcoin. So it is opening this up to um, people that watch daytime TV in the U.S., who may not be um, up to date with all these things. And it's quite a large following. 
And um, I, I think it's fantastic that at least they're going out and trying to explain. And I think she did a very good job, uh, to her credit, in in how she put this together and how she laid it out. Um, that said, you know, there's there's definitely a lot more that people who started learning about Bitcoin either um, through shows like Ellen DeGeneres, through shows like ours, or through lots of other means, uh, should learn about it before they invest in any cryptocurrency. Oh, completely. Completely. Learn more before you invest and don't only invest what you can afford to lose. Um, we can't say that enough, please. Um, and that's not investment advice. That's just good practice. Uh, so uh, as, as a rule, this is, um, you say, is that watershed moment, that uh, mainstream moment. It's still there even after the price has crashed and started to recover. So Bitcoin didn't die, long live Bitcoin sort of thing. Um, and it seems like ICOs may not be dying as well. We saw um, Switzerland in uh, their, their FINMA uh, body. I think they are the securities regulator from uh, Switzerland. They published their own ICO guidelines, um, which really got people talking, Colin. Why, why was that? Well, this got a lot of people talking. I think um, what what's really interesting, kind of to take a big step back here, is Switzerland tended and and really still is the epicenter of the ICO movement. So the ICOs in general have a very interesting legal structure. They they tried to accomplish something that uh, means that there is a company with no legal shareholders, and uh, as a result, these tokens are the whole company. So what they do is they set up um, a legal structure, which is a non-profit entity in Switzerland or a Schiftung, and they tend to be in, in the canton of Zug, which is just south of Zurich. Um, this was pioneered by Ethereum, if I'm not mistaken. I think there may have been one or two others, so uh, apologies if I'm getting that completely wrong. But Ethereum really made this model very easily uh, replicable. And um, as a result, uh, FINMA, who is the regulator down there for everything capital markets and banking, has started to say, hmm, okay, maybe we should put something out. Um, and the way they put stuff out here, there was really something for everybody, whether you loved ICOs, hated ICOs, really were indifferent to ICOs. They kind of came out and said, okay, here's a bunch of new things that maybe people hadn't thought about. Here's what we like, here's what we don't like. Here's what's a security, here's what's not a security. And it was really just that, um, depending on who you were and, and what you came in with, um, could decide that this was either good or bad. I think on the whole, um, people who were supportive of it were more pleased uh, than people who hate ICOs. Um, the really interesting thing in here, I think, was that they came out with this idea that we've talked on the show a bit about, and people in the ICO space have been talking about, which is utility tokens, and they've defined that in their guidance. Yeah, no, utility tokens have been kind of the question, because when ICOs come along, this is a new way to raise money, as you say, the global formation of capital, to raise money from around the world for lots of people, for lots of different projects, um, following the model that Ethereum had. And and I think the key points here are, is, look, each case is decided on its individual merits, so each ICO is a little bit different. Um, FINMA's principles focus on the function and transferability of tokens. So yes, they recognize, and I think they're the first regulator to use the term utility token, which some have called out as being, hey, maybe that's just a thing that people have made up to get around securities laws, and others say, no, it's really, really different to a security. They talk about focusing on anti-money laundering and securities regulation. So you know, how do we make sure that people aren't um, dealing with the proceeds of crime and just kind of laundering money? But they also call out, you know, there's three paragraphs here on the, the innovative potential of the technology, which is interesting from a regulator to st um, stand behind and say. But they also say, look, there are risks here. So this is kind of... um. 
possibly one of the more optimistic sounding regulators, which doesn't surprise me given the amount of activity that's been happening in Switzerland recently. But also it's not without um, thought to the risks and, and actually uh, maybe something that we look to see other global regulators start to build on as they've they've started to define the difference between uh, different types of ICOs and different types of token, which I think there is a real need for. Yeah. And I, I think the thing I'll just add to that, which I am I'm kind of a big fan of, is that it came out and it was an 11 page document of which two of those pages were about, you know, here's some questions if you want to get in touch with us. It is very clear. I think they realize who their audience are um, and that they're not going to go out and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars or Swiss franc to hire a specialized lawyer. They're going to look at this and go, all right, I'm either going to stop what I'm going to do doing or I'm going to go find out and find proper legal advice. Now, I hope that doesn't go to the extent where people say, no, what I'm doing is absolutely fine and I don't need any legal advice, especially if I'm trying to raise all kinds of money and sell this to all kinds of retail investors. Um, but you know, it is promising to say they put something out, I can read it, I can understand it, and I go, all right, the project that I had planned or I've been doing is either a problem or it isn't a problem within Swiss jurisdiction. And I think that thoughtfulness of how a regulator can outreach to people who wouldn't traditionally have dealt with regulators before is probably the most interesting thing. So linked to this, there was a story on Coindesk, again, from Christian Carlo, who I mentioned earlier, who's the chief of the CFTC, one of the major regulators in the US, who says um, sort of any regulation should be carefully tailored to the actual risks involved. Um, so uh, the quote is, any proposed regulation of virtual currency platforms must be carefully tailored to the risks um, based on the trading activity um, and enhancing efforts to prosecute fraud and manipulation. Um, appropriate federal oversight may include data reporting, capital requirements, cybersecurity standards. All of this sounds like a lot of jargon, but he's really talking about how do we work with crypto exchanges to figure out what's going on inside the world of crypto. Maybe we could share data with them. Maybe we could think about how much um, cash in terms of US dollars they should be holding in case there's a run on crypto. Maybe we should think about the minimum cybersecurity standards so that they don't get hacked. All of these are things that people who are using a crypto exchange are really worried about. All of these things that make sense to regulators and you know, existing trading venues kind of make a lot of sense. So again, it's a thoughtful, here's some things we should think about, here where we think the actual risks are. And all of those risks sound familiar to people who've been in the crypto space, who've experienced hacks, who've experienced um, kind of some of the other challenges. Absolutely. And I think... Um there's another kind of backstory to this whole thing. The CFTC several years ago um, fined Bitfinex, which is currently the largest uh, US dollar to Bitcoin exchange, and I, I believe by lots of measures the biggest uh, Bitcoin exchange there is. Um, they fined them for um, a, a fault that made what they were doing look like a derivative, um, and thus it came under the CFTC's jurisdiction. Um, they went back and had remedial action taken, and, and part of the hack that happened uh, was it about a year and a half ago? At Bitfinex was blamed on that remediation, the way that it was put in or or something about it. Um, now, I think that either they've learned a lesson there or they said, mm, okay, let's go back to this do no harm principle and let's make sure that these things that we're doing that are actually trying to help uh, investors that are trying to help the companies, make sure that they don't cause more risks, aren't leaving a residual risk because of what we've asked them to do. Yeah, let's not increase that residual risk. Again, 
thoughtfulness uh, in terms of the regulatory response, which may or may not be impacting sentiment in the markets. Um, But let's change gears, Colin. Um, Telegram. Story from uh, CNBC. Telegram has raised an initial $850 million for its billion-dollar ICO. Just go. Boom shakalaka. I mean, uh, we go from talking about sensible regulators to just absolute senselessness. Um, uh, you know, Telegram is interesting in that they they followed this road with with Kick and its Kin tokens. Their their white paper was was questionable, um, and a lot of the early investors that we covered earlier weren't involved in this. Um, some people started leaking their 132 page technical white paper. My God, 132-page technical white paper. I can guarantee that a lot of that uh, $850 million that was invested, people didn't make it through the first you know, four pages. Um, it it's really doesn't make any sense. I don't know why they're getting so much money other than the brand that is Telegram. And I don't know if this is really adding any value to anyone. Yeah, I'm missing it. I'm not getting why, other than a gold rush, other than um, people who feel like they missed out on the ICOs at the institutional level, feeling like they can get into this and feeling like they're dealing with a larger organization. I don't get what the the sale is here. And I think a lot of people in the community that I've spoken to are in the same position. It's like, well, what are you actually building here? What do you need a token for? Um, And there's some early ideas um, that that come out in the white paper, but I I haven't really seen... um, the the argument for their why their token has utility i haven't really seen that stuff now maybe i'm missing it maybe i just need to go back to that white paper but frankly that i have more work to do than i can handle this week so i don't know if uh, I'll, I'll get through that but uh, do reach out to yeah do reach out to b chain insider if we're missing it here 132 pages is a lot <laughs> No, I mean, I think that this is really a, a sad missed opportunity because, I mean, maybe there is something why Telegram or any other social media app should have some kind of blockchain something. Um, but, I mean, honestly, wouldn't you just get some of your smart programmers that you have at Telegram, go raise a bit more VC capital and say, why don't you go try to build something on top of another blockchain, see what makes sense, see what doesn't. And when we prove that it makes sense, then we can actually go out and raise money to increase the size of that and increase the following of that and give everybody skin in the game on that. I mean, isn't that the logical Silicon Valley way to do things? Like figure out what this stuff is, figure out what makes sense, what problem you're actually solving and go raise money to solve that problem. I mean, isn't this how these guys were raised? Yeah, and, and to be fair, look, Silicon Valley's done well on businesses that could get to scale before they figured out how to monetize. But ICOs are much more about, well, actually, we're building a platform and you'll own a piece of that platform and here's how the platform's going to monetize. So there's always this tension. Telegram open network cryptocurrency will be used to facilitate payments and microtransactions between 180 million users. So you've got 180 million users who might be paying each other, but what are they paying each other for and what are those services? Because let's not forget get telegram is the home of the pump and dump group so um really concerning um what, what that might be and this a level of fiduciary responsibility that they need to think about the flip side of that of course is well if you look at wechat um from tencent 
micropayments inside that application are absolutely massive and facilitate uh, a good chunk of the Chinese economy. So it's not unheard of that payments make sense. Um, but I just don't, this feels again, like a lot more of a grab of money that was on the table for ICOs rather than anything else. That's exactly what I think we're all worried about in this. And, you know, maybe, maybe we'll be proven wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong and, and Telegram can go out and make an absolute success of this and all the people that put money in will make money and all the people that use the product will love it. I just don't see those ingredients coming together especially when you start to delve in, and I've only done it at a very high level, into the white paper. So Hacker Noon actually has a really good overview of the um, Telegram ICO, um, and they sort of talk to what the the argument goes, which is, look, um, Ethereum and Bitcoin haven't actually made any difference in terms of competing with Visa and MasterCard, um, and actually it's very confusing to engage with um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So why not take something that's a known proven model, in other words, people paying through their chat application, and scale that onto and put that onto a faster um, kind of 2.0 blockchain um, that has um, sharding involved and hypercube routing and proof of stake and and, and all of the sort of buzzwords that um, rent an ICO tends to have these days um, and raise a lot of money and see if they can do it. So it's it's not an argument that's uh, without logic, but um, I don't know. It, it just something about the amount of money raised. Uh, I, I would love to be wrong on this one, but I, it just doesn't feel right. All right, next story. Um, speaking of things uh, not feeling right, uh, I think Vitalik has uh, warned that cryptocurrencies could drop to near zero. Um, the way Fortune um, wrote that headline, it sounds like he's made a price prediction. But actually, his tweet um, was written uh, like this. Reminder, cryptocurrencies are still new and hyper-volatile as an asset class and could drop to near zero at any time. Don't put in more money than you could afford to lose. If you're trying to figure out where to store your life savings traditional assets are still your safest bet just feels like good sense from vitalik here it, it does he got a lot of flack for this though um i mean some people are pointing out that you know it, it's great that vitalik who of course is the founder of ethereum um and the the head of the ethereum foundation puts this thing out that's great but you know it, it's kind of after the horse is bolted um and you know gone on to several other races um ethereum is not brand new um by cryptocurrency standards it was kind of launched in, in 2013, if you really go back. 2014 was the crowd sale. 2015 is when it actually came online. Um, it, it, there's lots of things that are much newer than it. Um, and the fact that he's come out now when he's already made, by some estimation, billions of dollars, a lot of people are criticizing that fact. Um, I absolutely am staunchly in support of the the what he said in here. And I think we've said this time after time in this show. And I think we've all retweeted this thing over the last week. Um, these things are very volatile. Um, and the people that are coming out and, and saying, okay, yeah, it's, it's funny of you to say this. Listen to the message. I mean, a lot of these people are also very critical of the investment. You can pin down Vitalik and say he's doing the wrong thing or he's done it too late, um, but it is the right thing to say. And I'm glad that he said it. Yeah. And it's a, uh, puts him in a different position with potentially regulators with governments and so on uh, and it puts them in a different position in, in the community as, as I think trying to say the right things and move the community in a direction that um, suits people who may be vulnerable uh, rather than being kind of in that pump and dump community and he's always been quite outspoken going back to his early Bitcoin magazine days um, but always quite um, clear and concise in, in what he's aiming to achieve so um, good on you Vitalik. 
Did did you see the thing that came in on top of this before we move on? Uh, there was there's been a, a big scam going around. And I don't know if people have seen this. Um, the people is posing as Vitalik and and copying his his Twitter um, account, coming in and responding to everything through their bots or whatever, saying you know if you send money here, I'll send you back more eth. And I think this actually got picked up by one of the cryptocurrency um, news websites. Uh, they didn't realize it was a scam. So I think that um, it was interesting he put out another scam and that had follow-ups from the bots about scam. Like he said, don't ever send me money. I'll never ask you for money. And then the the bots came in. There's not only the possibility you could lose money from the market prices going up and down, but there are scams. So please, people, be careful. Wow. The, the 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 scams around the space are i think why international regulators uh, are very concerned about it and why banks won't touch the space so um again if you're vitalik and you've got a lot of projects that can't get bank accounts then making this sort of uh, distinction between uh the pockets of light and and the pockets of dark in the space uh, are kind of important especially when there's um there's there's a lot of perception i think amongst banks but there's not a lot of understanding um across you know, the breadth and depth of those 100, 200,000 person organizations about how you'd give somebody a bank account. So to have a big public figure saying things like this, hopefully increase the legitimacy for the space. Um, next story um, comes from Vice. Uh, again, talk about the mainstreaming of the subject. Bitcoin is becoming a nightmare for divorce lawyers. So uh, a UK firm is warning of a looming divorce nightmare. Like divorces were fun anyway, but anyway. Um, but is there anything more mainstream than divorce? Right? Well, no, 50% of people these days, right? It's um, half of people be losing half. Um, all right, so... As spouses quibble over the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that can fluctuate wildly, the law firm Roids Withy King says that it's a flurry of cases recently involving disputes over cryptocurrency holdings. One was valued at $1.4 million. Um, they're working on three separate high-value divorce cases where spouses are seeking the disclosure and potential share of cryptocurrency assets. This is why you want to be your own bank, isn't it, Colin? Because uh, you've, you've got a string of uh, former lovers that you're just not telling the listeners about. Is that what it is? <laughs> Oh, man, no. Isn't this a thing? Like, everybody's always joking, like, um, just just tell the court you lost your private key or something like that. I mean, um, a lot of people are coming around saying, you know, um, Bitcoin's really cool because nobody can take it from you. And then you read these types of things and go, actually, the law is pretty good at taking things away from people if, if they don't deem it that they should have them. So it's an interesting word of warning that I think spreads beyond just the, the realm of divorce. And I feel bad for anybody going through a divorce right now or having to deal with splitting up assets, including cryptocurrencies. Um, but it is interesting to see how this thing gets shoehorned into everything else with all of the nuances, like the nuances we were talking about in so many of the other stories. So not only is this Bitcoin stuff new, exciting, volatile, scary, it's also quite hard to pin down. It's hard to pin down, but that was for some in the community, it's intent. Um, be your own bank was the idea and uh, kind of once your money is yours it's yours and nobody can take it from you was was kind of the core idea the flip side of that is you can't mainstream it with those concepts because consumers lose money um, and then regulation comes in to react to public opinion and then regulation can only be enforced by laws and courts and governments so therefore you end up having to kind of take away some of that be your own bank side with things like know your customer um, and once you've got know your customer once you 
know who holds a Bitcoin, then you can potentially uh, help take away that Bitcoin, whether it's through law enforcement or other means. So uh, it, it raises some interesting questions for sure in terms of you know what is what is the purpose and future of it. Uh, and the interesting thing about something like Bitcoin is um, the intended purpose and what it ends up being could be two different things. Alrighty, um, next story on Forbes, Atari, um, uh, the famous video game company from the 70s, um, parents of Pac-Man uh, and Miss Pac-Man. Uh, they're launching their own cryptocurrency, um, the Atari token, because, well, of course it is. Um, is this just PR, Colin? <laughs> I, I love how the because of course it is is something that you would absolutely say and i i had to look in this link to make sure you weren't quoted in it because that is so something you'd say it is the actual title of this thing from forbes way to go forbes you've now done simon taylor um <laughs> we talked about telegram hell why not um this is another thing they're talking about the global reputation of atari the only thing i remember it for is the fact of you know pac-man and and some of these arcade games this is not the place that you necessarily go to looking for new innovation. Um, and it feels a whole lot like uh, the new meaning of Kodak moment, which is, hey, let's strap a blockchain on top of it because why the hell not? Hey, it worked for Kodak, right? Oh, oh wait a second. Oh, wait. You'd think they'd learn, right? It, is this like, we'll just um, we'll just stick this out there and hope we get a pump in the share price. And actually, is that not risky with regulators? I, I really think management teams need to think seriously about this stuff. Like, I, it, this isn't the companies that would excite you doing this stuff. It's it's kind of the dregs here. When, uh, when it's not Telegram and it's not Atari and it's not Kodak, but it's actually the big names, they're probably doing it behind the scenes uh, if they are working on this tech and working behind the scenes they'll get it right and then they'll launch it and they'll put it put all their might behind it rather than do a press release whilst they try and figure it out so there's 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 a different thing there and it gets away from kind of this core idea of look we're building platforms that are open source and this is a different way of funding the development of free open source software uh it's it's much more about hey this company that's kind of dying and it has a bad top line is looking to get a press release it's 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 um it's quite sad really yeah. I, and, you know, as a fun fact here, because Simon always likes these fun facts, Atari is actually a French company. I just learned that now. Uh, you can stick with your mini field and I'm going to move us to the next story from a publication called Bazinga. Um, that was spelled quite interestingly and it made me think of Sheldon Cooper. Um, so with China cracking down, uh, where do you mine Bitcoin instead? Um, so apparently the worst option worldwide is South Korea, where it would take... Uh, $26,000 on average to generate one Bitcoin because of the electricity prices. But Venezuela would be quite a good place because it would take only 531 US dollars to produce a Bitcoin. Maybe that's why they're launching Petrocoin, which we discussed last week, Colin. I, you know, I, I think the Venezuela... It doesn't count in the cost of the fact that the stories that were coming out a while ago where, you know, people were getting locked up in jail uh, because they were running Bitcoin miners, which I guess was uh, against the law in Venezuela. Um, they've got free electricity or something near free electricity. Uh, and people were taking advantage of that to mine Bitcoin because they also had capital controls. Um, I, I think I would go ahead and try South Korea before I tried Venezuela for Bitcoin mining based solely on that fact alone. Um, but this is this is an interesting story, I think, um, from a wider point of view. Um, there's been lots of talk about China cracking down, um, as the story talks about, but where they're going outside of 
Venezuela. Um, Iceland has been one of the, the ones people have talked about. Quebec in Canada. There was an article uh, talking about Washington State, where I'm from, because of cheap hydroelectric um, energy. Some of this, and, and I know this is something that you were talking about a while ago, Simon, on the show, um, some of this may go to further renewable energies. Um, there was some some interesting talk from the Quebec um, people promoting this, that uh, it tends to use energy that they otherwise can't do anything with and just end up burning off uh, in places like rural Quebec, where there's just nobody to use it. Um, or sometimes where you have variable things like um, um, solar or wind power that you can't really predict and you may or may not be able to use it and it's hard to store. Maybe mining Bitcoin isn't such a horrible thing. Um, but I think a lot of places like you know Venezuela or some of the other cheaper places, that may not be the case. So interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, the crossover of energy markets, energy over production, and the uh, the kind of the fluctuations in renewables in terms of the energy they produce, the time of day they produce them, the oversupply, the undersupply, and the nature of trading those um, speaks to why I think both Power Ledger and Grid Plus are uh, kind of compelling projects to learn about. I mean, super early days and uh, kind of super early in terms of what it might mean. Uh, but then there's the dynamics of where in the world do you place a mining operation, both from a legal perspective. I think uh, also there's a question about uh, why is China cracking down? Because if you think about it, if I uh, had a lot of proceeds of crime, uh, it might be harder for me to take that to a Bitcoin exchange and try and launder the money than to build a Bitcoin mining operation with those proceeds of crime. And for then that uh, that mining operation for to generate me a load of Bitcoin that nobody knows where it's come from because they came directly from the Bitcoin network creating them itself. So the, there's a lot of legitimate concerns here um, in terms of like uh, how's that equipment sold, how's it managed, uh, what's the source of the energy. Um, that that's really interesting from a geopolitical perspective. So we'll, we'll keep watching this one. Um, and you raised some interesting points there, Colin, that, that kind of got me thinking. That's that's what we do. And it's it's what you do with a beard near a mini field. Um, you wanted to follow up on a story we mentioned last week. Um, there was a dark pool ICO story. So why did you want to follow up on this one? Well, this this is something you guys started to talk about last week, and of course I was in France, so all I could do was was send you nasty messages about it. You're still in France. Uh, I'm st- well, the other side of France, <laughs> Eastern France. Let's go with that. Um, so this this was an article about dark pools and a, a dark pool ICO that raised about thirty million dollars at the time. What is a dark pool, first of all? Uh, a dark pool is um, contrary to an exchange like a cryptocurrency exchange or a more standard exchange like NASDAQ or London Stock Exchange or any of those other ones. Um, it uh, takes all the trades or potential trades from somebody and it kind of spreads them out without showing all the information to everybody. Um, they decided that one of the big problems in cryptocurrencies was the fact that everybody could just go in and trade. And maybe that's why there's a lot of volatility. And if somebody sees that you want to sell off $10 million or $20 million in Bitcoin, the price is going to collapse and go down by 5 or 10%. So their, their solution was, hey, let's get this ICO out there and we're going to get rid of all these OTC brokers. Um, for those that aren't aware, there are some, some companies that have entered the space over the last few years and their business is simply going out and saying, all right, you have a lot of Bitcoin, you want to sell a lot of Bitcoin, let me go sell those on your behalf and make sure the price doesn't drop by 5 or 10 or 20%. Um, and then I'll give you all the money for it. Um, they're saying, well, look, we don't trust those guys. We have all kinds of fancy things. This, this again, feels like um, maybe not a horrible idea, but I don't know that it's fully thought out. Um, I think they they miss the fact that dark pools themselves do have lots of OTC brokers in them. And um, if they want this thing to work, um, they can't go out and just disrupt uh, the OTC brokers. They need to work with them. 
So I, I wish these guys success. I know they've got lots of investors, although I don't know what investors in ICO mean other than they got in early um, and they may or may not stay with you. Um, so great for them. Hopefully it works out. But um, I think these guys are going to have a lot to learn. They've even said that in their own press release. They're not really even sure how it's going to work. So we'll see. And look, there's an element of risk uh, when you're investing in anything. You're, a seed round company wouldn't have product market fit figured out. And uh, there's something about the the bliss of ignorance in terms of like sometimes people have created things, uh, setting out to do one thing and then creating something else and, and startups do pivot. But also an awful lot of them fail. Yeah. And $30 million is a larger than general ticket outside of the cryptocurrency space for this level of investment. And for this level of thought and experience as well. But with $30 million, maybe they could hire some people that uh, know a little bit about that space. I'm sure there's lots of people in Wall Street and elsewhere that really want into the ICO world. It seems like the, the, the exciting thing to do these days. Okay, stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, story from Medium um, by Chris Dixon, who is a partner at A16Z. Why decentralization matters. Uh, if you read one thing this week, read that. Um, I think it's... Uh, a very articulate argument for the powers and the potential for decentralization and the time horizons involved with with some of this stuff um and how and set against the context of the development of the original internet but as um Kadim Schuber pointed out, the uh, the FT journalist, he, he pointed out on Twitter, actually, decentralization is amazing, but surely um, if, like, the internet was decentralized, the reality is companies then use that to build really interesting centralized businesses over the top of that decentralized uh, kind of infrastructure, like, for example, Coinbase on top of Bitcoin, then kind of, you know, is the vision of decentralization actually that you're just building new infrastructure for more centralization? And should you be really thinking about it in different terms, which is an interesting set of questions. Story in Eth News, uh, Ethereum dev uh, Yorichi Harai steps away from a role as EIP editor, so the Ethereum Improvement Program or plan, I can't remember what uh, the P in EIP stands for, and raises questions about the process. Um, so that's how, uh, I guess, these organizations, uh, well, I guess Ethereum and some of these open source uh, projects put together a plan for how Ethereum will be improved and vote on, on which one of those plans gets uh, put together. And I think, indeed, um, a lot of the ELC tokens originally went through that process and many more. Um, really good. Let's just hit on that one real quick. So that, that it is an interesting process, and I think we should go in depth on, in another episode about how that works because it's very similar to the Bitcoin um, BIP process. The This Ethereum dev, Yochi, stepped away, actually, because he was worried about Japanese laws and how that might come in and affect it. And a lot of people were worried about what what happened there. And this is actually all kind of coming back to the parody hack that uh, we covered on the show a few months ago, where money was locked up because of one of the Ethereum clients parody. And there was a proposal actually put out um, in the form of an EIP that said, well, we can do this process and retrieve funds and, and do forks at will to recover lost funds. Um, and he was worried that that would violate Japanese law. Um, he's based in Germany, but I believe a Japanese citizen. And he was he raised the alarm bells and decided that he no longer wanted to be um, a dev for this. So um, I definitely appreciate you standing up for your morals here, Yochi, if you're listening. So uh, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about it. Um, but we do want to cover the process in more depth. Yeah, let's see if we can reach out to Yochi, because I think there being Japanese law involved, that going all the way back to the parity hack, there's a, there's an, an, a lot more to this than meets the eye. Definitely. 
All right. Um, story on Coindesk. Uh, Citibank and Credit Agricole have bought a stake in a company called Settle, S-E-T-L. Um, and, of course, a uh, story in Coindesk. R3 are training DLT lawyers, which may be the most rock and roll headline I think I've ever heard. Colin? I uh, thought it was really cool, actually. <laughs> well, you're um, a rock and roll that- kind of guy. I'm, I'm into rock and roll DLT and law, right? I am not a lawyer at all. I, I just, you know, have an affinity for them. <laughs> um, no, let's, let's just hit on this real quick. So, um, again, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, all that's great, all that's fun, all that's different. Um, these guys have actually said, right, we're not doing that. We're doing the DLT thing, which is wider. Um, but there's still lots of interesting questions. Let's get a bunch of lawyers around the table and talk about how to do those things. And this potentially takes this problem that we've been talking about a lot for a long time about we have legal contracts, they're in paper, they're expensive to maintain, they're expensive to negotiate. Let's put them in this cool new digital thing um, that happens to be a distributed ledger. And let's manage a lot of those things that can be automated. And let's figure out what the things that can or can't be automated and how they might fit into this Ricardian contract that Ian Grigg put out very eloquently years ago, um, where we have another legal agreement that needs to be bound on top of that. What would that all look like? So um, R3 been very successful in building a consortium with with financial institutions, with technology partners. Now they've said, right, let's do this with the legal side. So I think this is a, a very good thing. And I know R3 are, are a good sponsor here, but uh, definitely good shout out to them. We really like seeing this type of stuff. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because how does law interact with technology is an interesting set of questions. How do you take legal um, kind of pros? How do you take legal clauses and start to enact that legal clause uh, clause automatically i think automating law is is just a really interesting or at least the clauses within law that we agree can be automated ahead of time right so there's there's, there's an interesting area there to, to kind of play with and the more people get educated the better um all right don't forget listeners you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we have or have not covered on uh by getting in touch on twitter at b chain insider or you can reach out to me at sy taylor if you want to pick up anything with me personally or at colin g platt if you want to make fun of his new beard um otherwise you can drop an email at podcasts at 11fs.com we'd love to hear from you um i also wanted to let you know that this week colin and i took over a sister podcast called insuretech insider um it was a one-off uh, blockchain and insurance mashup so if you're uh, on uh, itunes now or whatever your favorite podcast client is just search for insuretech insider check that one out we had some uh, an overview as to how blockchain might or might not impact the insurance industry with a panel of experts and uh i think colin you spoke to stefan from uh, ethosic as well Yep, absolutely. Interesting projects. Alrighty, Colin, enough about other podcasts. Um, Back to this podcast. We uh, have spoken a lot today about how we start to make the whole uh, token space interoperate with regulators and thoughtful regulators. But what about thoughtful projects? Well, uh, we spoke to Patrick and Matt from Consensus about the Brooklyn Project. Over to that interview. Great. So we are here Uh, On Blockchain Insider, I have the good fortune of being joined by Matt and Patrick from Project Brooklyn. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. Glad to be here. Doing well. Thanks, Simon. Thank you for coming on. So um, does one of you gentlemen want to tell me just the brief story of, uh, first of all, how did you guys meet and how did Project Brooklyn get started? So uh, Pat and I are both lawyers for Consensus. Consensus is uh, obviously a big company in blockchain, focusing mainly on Ethereum. I joined Consensus in legal about two years ago. Um, Pat also works in legal, joined at some point last year, although it's been a whirlwind of, of fun times. So we've uh, 
I, I think we're at the point where we now think the same thoughts in the exact same moment on, on all of these issues. We spent so much time together <laughs> over the over the time we've been working together. And uh, Pat can tell you a little bit more about Project Brooklyn and its origin. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously we're big believers in the technology and in particular uh, the promise of tokenization. We think it there's uh, a lot of great promise in terms of um, what it can do in terms of economic growth and also just uh, societal prosperity as well. And um, obviously over the course of the last year, we also you know heard a lot of concerns growing in the market from regulators and also just from industry practitioners and people who are learning about blockchain for the first time. And a lot of those were um, focused, I think, in particular on you know what was going on in the the token the token sale space and um, you know I think we were very concerned that we did not want the the growing concerns to uh, blunt the the potential of the technology and so we wanted to take action and step up and try to start solving these problems addressing them head-on and so that's really how we um, came about wanting to form uh, the Brooklyn project so tell me a little bit uh, about uh, your own backgrounds before consensus and and then you talked about some of the risks of tokens but some of the benefits of tokens so kind of I, i'm i'm interested in that narrative of you uh, had a life before uh, entering consensus that's probably shaped why you see value in tokenization so what is that value and what are the risks yeah sure so uh Pat here. My my background is I have a background in law and technology. Uh, undergraduate, I was a computer science major, math minor. Went to law school. I practiced law for about seven years at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York. I did a lot of financial services related law. Uh, I left there a couple years ago to co-found a health tech startup where I did all of the software architecture uh, and development. And I moved on from that last year and ultimately joined Consensus, where you know I'm doing primarily law, but also a lot of kind of strategic and, and product development as well. Um, and so I think you know, with my background in terms of the the computer science and the the, the technology aspects as well as the law, um, I think the the really seeing the promise of uh, tokenization and blockchain for the way it can help automate and make um, various interactions and collaborations between parties, some of which you don't even know, more efficient and more effective, I think is really exciting. And the fact that, you know, once you're able to do that, it allows for what, you know, you might call like compounding value creation, right? Which was just really allows. That's a heck of a term, compounding <laughs> value creation. What on earth is that? You've heard of val- You've heard of compounding interest, right? It, well, um, yeah, but I think there's a lot of people that really struggle with that concept. This is the idea that if I'm collecting 3% every year, that 3% on, you know, so it's $103, then it's 3% of $103, which becomes more, uh, which is a bit more than 106. It's 106 plus a bit, right? So then that 106 plus a bit plus 3% becomes more and more and more. It's not just the 3% I'm getting, it's that additional 3% plus the 3%. Right? Yeah, and we, so although I'm a math miner, I won't double check your math, but I'll, I'll trust you on that. But no, I, that's, I, that's my like same. very, bad attempt at math like seriously this is how bad financial literacy really is but i think that concept plus the element of tokens kind of comes in yeah so the idea with the tokens is you can you know you can create natively digital assets um and you can create um, natively digital assets for a lot of the key components of current transactions today and once they're natively digital you can allow near frictionless uh, transactions as well as value creation around these assets. And it doesn't mean you don't have any friction. You can do kind of narrowly tailored friction to whatever particular interest you want. Maybe it's AML, KYC types of things, but you can be much more uh, 
efficient and effective with the friction that you're introducing into these transactions. So then the idea is if you have these transactions or value creation events that are near frictionless or very efficient, that then creates the opportunity to have additional transactions and value creation events around that first layer. And it's just, you know, it's layer upon layer of kind of more complex and more efficient transactions and value creation events become possible. Ooh, layers of value creation. I mean, it could either be a great McKinsey slide or it could be a breakthrough in financial innovation and, and kind of tokenization. So what what are the threats to that? Because you said there was this kind of drumbeat of uh, negative regulatory pressure that, that might have been seen. I mean, we've obviously seen China and South Korea uh, and some of the mood music has certainly changed with what's coming up at the G20. They're starting to discuss it. Um, Prime Minister of the UK even said that they need to look at um, Telegram as being the home of of uh, kind of terrorists and criminals, that this there's a very negative perception that's out there. I mean, is some of that warranted? I think the concern of the regulators is warranted because it's in their purview to be concerned about these things. Whether or not it's justified, I think, is another question. I think people are, are usually fearful of new technologies. I think a lot of what this technology enables is, as Pat said, sort of frictionless value transfer, which I think sort of scares a lot of people that you could have these transfers that were previously done through a trusted third party that, you know, the regulators came to trust, right? You know, regulators like banks because banks serve an important function in regulation for KYC, AML, things like that. For our purposes, we see, you know, that may not be necessary, right? We can reinvent the world where we have all of the same protections that regulators might be concerned about, things like KYC and AML, but we can do so in a way that adds more value to consumers and, and takes out some of that frictional cost. Right, and, and that's a really key point because if we just impose regulation the way we used to think about it, KYC, AML, the way we used to think about it, show me your passport type of regulation, surely then we're reintroducing kind of an analog process into something that's really digital. We're, we're kind of trying to kludge in this this old world of analog, and we're missing the innovation. But we're, you know, the intention is good. The intention is efficient, fair, transparent markets. But, it, but the effect is actually that you lose the efficiency. You may even lose some of the fairness by using the analog process. So talk to me about how you're thinking about you know, what are the key tenants of Project Brooklyn and, and, and what, are, what are you guys slated to, to deliver and execute on? So I think one of the key tenets really is focusing on consumer protection. And one of the reasons why we're focusing on that is because, you know, regardless of which jurisdiction you're talking about, the regulators and policymakers, you know, they might be they might be having different legal rubrics or frameworks that they're trying to apply to this new technology that they're struggling with. But if you really kind of cut through all of that and get down to what are the first principles that they're really concerned about and that they want to make sure are, are taken into consideration, a lot of it really boils down to consumer protection. And so so uh, what we are really focusing on with the Brooklyn Project is designing kind of uh, uh, solutions to emphasize consumer protection. And the solutions are anything from uh, thought leadership. Uh, we've written a few thought leadership pieces uh, to, um, you know, actually templates that can be used in the market and also technology. I mean, it could be code snippets that get put into smart contracts. It could be actual crypto economic systems that we develop to help achieve certain goals to, to help the industry. Um, really, you know, uh, it's all on the table, frankly, um, whatever, just whatever it needs to, we need to do to kind of get things. So, so it's solved. kind of like a toolbox, and I guess you guys have created um, some open source materials that people can pick up and use 
A little bit. I think it's also, you know, in terms of how we're going about this, we're also going about this in a very open source way. So we have a Telegram channel, we have a Reddit channel, we're posting very early work product to get feedback from the community early on. We're helping the community kind of help us uh, crowdsource the ideas for things we, you know, that, that they think would be helpful. And so we're really letting the community kind of be a part of this from from day one. So where do we go from here? Like, what what does a good outcome to Project Brooklyn look like? Uh, what what do you hope people do with the tools you're creating? So uh, we we hope that they're used, right? We hope that they're both used and useful. So we've talked to a lot of regulators around the globe, and the consumer protection is the one constant across every continent you talk to a regulator on. It's what everybody's concerned about. We heard about it again today from a European country. Um, obviously, a big concern in the United States where we operate. Um, so. We hope that the tools that we create help assuage some of the regulatory concerns around consumer protection. So if you look at frameworks in the U.S., they're mostly about making sure that consumers have the information they need to make informed purchases so they know about the risks, they have the right material information about the projects that they, that they want to put money into. And I think that's some of what we saw that was concerning to regulators in the market for some time is that these new projects were popping up. You know, Some of them were pseudonymous, anonymous. Nobody knew how to contact them. Uh, white papers were cobbled together. You know, I, we've been doing this for a long time and white papers were once 40 pages with lots of technical information. There came a time where there were 38 pages of bios and paid advisors, right? And, and so the question is, do people actually understand what they're buying? And we hope that the Brooklyn Project really gets at that. Um, we're, we're working a lot on sophistication of purchasers to make make sure that, you know, these assets are something that they're, you know, are apt for them to purchase. And that's both financial and technical sophistication. So, so a new, new sort of layer to the traditional view, which was that, you know, if you're rich, you're qualified. Um, we think that the, the new world's a little bit different. Um, so one, can you tolerate financial risk? And, and two, do you actually understand the technology in a way? Or, you know, you're just sort of just chasing a CNBC was talking about Ripple. So, you know, I want to buy Ripple. And I think in the short term in particular, I mean, we hope to hopefully in the short term have a framework together that we think um, addresses a lot of the consumer protection needs. But it's a framework for selling tokens in a way that that, that helps protect consumers and also um, deliver great technology. Yeah, yeah. So uh, where can people go to find out more about Project Brooklyn? Uh, we have a website, the brooklynproject.consensus.net. Um, we also have a Twitter. Uh, I actually forget the handle. It's a bit complicated, but uh, you can find us through Consensus. We're on the Consensus homepage, consensus.net. Brilliant. Gentlemen, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. A big thank you to Patrick and Matt. And of course, uh, my co-host, Colin Platt. And Colin, uh, will you be doing amazing things in France this week? I, I hope to be doing amazing things in France this week. I have a lot of work I need to get done. Yeah, we do. we got to get through some stuff. Um, we we be doing the, the work here at 11FS, and as does our media team. Um, so thank you very much to uh, Laura Watkins, uh, our producer, Michael Bailey, our editor, and assistant producer, Petrit, who's still recovering, but managed to help us out with show notes and a lot more. Shout out, Pet. Um, I, think he, I think he has rabies, so watch out. Oh, look out. He, he could have anything going on. He's um, He's been dangerously ill, but doing amazing things, all things considered. And Get well, sir. Uh, and hopefully catching up on some good movies um, because Lord knows he, he needs to 
needs to get educated in the movie space. Um, but we'll we'll follow his saga of getting well and getting educated in movies as as future shows develop. Um, can as we a put quick that on a blockchain, actually, we can we can put that on a blockchain. Eleven uh, FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger uh, agency. We help you do stuff. Uh, we help you build stuff. We help you understand blockchain. We help you understand DLT. Um, and we are right here uh, at eleven fs.com if you want to know more please do subscribe to our podcast leave us a review on itunes and spread the word tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to we'll have more blockchain inside next week for now goodbye